President Biden ran on building the economy from the middle out, but the Biden administration has both adopted the narrative and committed themselves to the policy agenda it implies right. in the most robust way in a generation. It turned out to be a really great summer. We got what they've now called the Inflation Reduction Act. The biggest benefits of the Inflation Reduction Act really go down to the administration doing its best to bring down costs on some of life's biggest non-negotiable expenses. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Nick, it's our first episode back from our first podcast summer break. Uh, what'd you do this summer? Oh, just the usual fooling around. <laughs> oh, just no. like me, yeah. taking the dog for a walk. Yeah, uh, no, I did, I did some fun things. Uh, I went to Alaska with some of my friends. Uh, I spent my summer, uh, you know, what I usually do, which is uh, uh, watching uh, Senator Manchin to, to see what he allows uh, Congress yeah. to do. And oh, my God, Nick, it turned out to be a really great summer. It was a great summer. Out of the blue, uh, we got what they've now called the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA. And, uh, you know, it's another triumph for Dark Brandon. It is. What is Dark Brandon? I've heard that. What What the hell is that? So it's that Republican Trumpist thing where they they that let's go Brandon is their uh, way of saying F you Biden. Yeah. And uh, so there's this Dark Brandon meme that has uh, uh, showed up on the other side. It's it's Biden with the sunglasses on oh. and and you know all buffed up and getting things done yeah and that's kind of taken over because it turns out that if you actually look at what's happened in this administration even though our 50-50 alleged control of the senate with uh, mansion and cinema blocking a lot yeah. of the most ambitious packages despite all of the obstacles the biden administration has been one of the most consequential since I don't know what FDR. Yeah. LBJ, at least. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. And like if you add up the scale of the accomplishments, you know, while everyone was whining about Biden being old and feeble and out of touch and senile and failed, he was quietly becoming the most transformational president we've had probably since LBJ. There is simply no doubt that he and this Congress have gotten more done than any, it, no one comes close. I mean, when you add up the rescue package that they passed uh, initially, then the infrastructure bill, this bill, um, the CHIPS Act is incredibly consequential. Um, mm -hmm. The first time we've done anything on gun violence in a generation, uh, what else? I'm probably for forgetting stuff, but the Inflation Reduction Act being sort of the crowning piece, of that amazing string of accomplishments is it's just really something to reckon with. And, you know, I think the people who have been particularly Democrats who have been carping about the Biden administration, you know, I just come on. 
Like, right. is there a better example of letting the perfect be the enemy of the good? Holy crap. And let's be clear, it's not just what they've passed through Congress. Uh, we've had the just incredible job growth. We keep hearing yeah. how we're in recession or something right. and we still it's get bullshit. We still get this job growth. Yes, inflation is high, but let's be clear. We've talked about this. It's high all over the world. Yeah. It's not just the United States. Right. It's a lot of it is driven by these very volatile areas, which the Inflation Reduction Act addresses. Yeah. So to learn a little bit more about what's in this act and how it will impact. And let's be clear, unlike a lot of past legislation, impacts average Americans, median yes. incomes Amer Americans, the middle class. This is not something that, well, clearly it doesn't benefit the rich because <laughs> yeah. it actually taxes corporations and it uh, mean tests some of the benefits. And it's not something that is aimed just at poor people. This is something where the vast majority of Americans are going to see benefits in lower costs and in rebates for home improvements that will dramatically lower their costs over times and in lower costs for healthcare uh, and pharmaceuticals, yeah. et cetera. And so to talk us through the details of the Inflation Reduction Act and its impact on everyday Americans, we're happy to talk with Rose Qatar from the Center for American Progress. I'm Rose Qatar. I'm an associate director at the Center for American Progress, also an economist, and recently published a fact sheet on the top 11 benefits of the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, Rose, for listeners that may not know, uh, can you sum up what the Center for American Progress does? Of course. So the Center for American Progress is a progressive organization, which basically I think think of like a traditional think tank with a little bit more advocacy involved. So we put out, you know, a range of publications and research on different topics, you know, on the economy, on childcare, on different parts of the education system. But we don't just write reports, we go out there and make sure, you know, through mediums like this, that people are actually able to see the types of work we're doing. And we do our best to also influence policymakers and pushing them to pursuing a more progressive legislative agenda. That's great. So were you guys pretty fired up uh, about the Inflation Reduction Act finally making its way through Congress and to Biden's desk? It's been a whirlwind of emotions through the various, <laughs> you know, the different variations of what was and what wasn't going to be in the yeah. reconciliation package and previously it being called Build Back Better. But, it, and, you know, we got to a point where I think everyone had thought nothing was going to get done. You yeah. know, like I remember no. December of last year, how depressing it was to see it all fall apart. And so this yes. has been, this has been really, really something to celebrate. Yeah. So you and your colleagues came up with a list of 11 benefits. Obviously, there are more <laughs> probably, but help us understand, you know, what the big benefits are for Americans. So I think, you know, to sum it up in like a sentence or two, I think, you know, the biggest benefits of the Inflation Reduction Act really go down to the administration doing its best to bring down costs on some of life's biggest non-negotiable expenses. So things like prescription drugs, healthcare, and energy. And all of this is coming at a time when the United States and you know basically every other country in the world is dealing with record high inflation. And so this is, I think, part of the administration's 
you know, one of the tools they can have to help fight inflation, but also deal with some of the costs that have existed long before this inflationary moment. You know, things like prescription drugs have been expensive for a very long time. And this is a measure that would have been great if it was pursued five years ago, not necessarily just today. So it's great to see them really driving down the cost of the things that, you know, have been expensive for a very long time. Yeah. So let's start, if you don't mind, with the sort of healthcare bucket. And why don't you kind of go through what, what what's in the package that helps Americans with their health care? Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the statistics that I came across like a little while ago that really stuck with me was that one in four American adults who have not have not taken their medication as prescribed because it was just too expensive. And so one of the biggest things that the Inflation Reduction Act does is that for Medicare beneficiaries, you know, it basically caps out of pocket costs for prescription drugs to $2,000 annually. And it's going to help about a million seniors save about $1,000 each year, which is just a huge saving. And it's not necessarily just about the saving part of it. It's that it'll help more people get access to drugs that they need to just basically live on a daily basis. So that's, I think, one of the biggest parts of the healthcare packages, you know, capping the out-of-pocket expenses on prescription drugs. But there's also more to it that goes beyond that. So the Inflation Reduction Act also empowers Medicare to negotiate with drug companies to lower prices. And it also, which is a huge measure, it's preventing drug companies from raising Medicare prices in excess of inflation. So, you know, sometimes we can see big pharma going out there and putting up prices, you know, a little too high than is necessary. Up until now, that's kind of been okay. And so through the Inflation Reduction Act, it's going to work to prevent that from taking place. Yeah. And I do think that for our listeners, it's really worth underscoring how utterly insane it has been for what has it been uh sorry oh when they when they added the prescription drug benefit to medicare there were that was uh, during the the w bush administration yeah and, and they, that was a fight then about whether to let medicare negotiate with with pharma over drug prices and yeah. republicans blocked that yeah. they've been blocking it for a couple right. decades yeah and it, it's just almost surreally shocking to reckon with the fact that for the last 20 years, when Medicare bought drugs, it basically had to buy them at the highest list price, right. uh, which effectively makes Americans spend, what is it, two, three, four times more for the same drug that other people in wealthy countries uh, spend, you know, basically turning Medicare into this giant source of ridiculous profits for the for the pharmaceutical business industry it's just it's just unbelievable that we let this happen and finally the biden administration has been able to push back on that it's just a huge accomplishment i mean it's pathetic that we had to do it but it is a huge accomplishment absolutely and i feel like time and time again you know different presidents, different politicians have come out and said, oh, this is a really big deal. We really should do something about it because it's affecting people's ability to live. And nothing ever gets done. You know, right. it's like nothing ever gets done. And this is a very good example of like a clear measure that Congress could have passed a while ago that would have helped save people's lives and made people be able to, you know, afford the drugs that they need to live and also then spend money on other essentials. So it's yeah. great to see it finally done. Yeah, and there's that neat thing that they put in about diabetes too, which is uh, uh, um, for insulin, right? That you pay no more than thirty-five dollars per month out of pocket for insulin, 
on on Medicare. But I'm curious, Rose, do these does the Medicare negotiation and and these caps does that help uh, push down prices outside of Medicare for uh, people with uh, private insurance? So there were measures that tried to go beyond just Medicare recipients that the parliamentarian basically threw out and that members of, you know, Republicans in the Senate side didn't vote for then. So a, a lot of those measures actually got taken out. I think there's some argument that could be said that, you know, we're seeing Medicare lower prices that could push those you know, providing drugs outside of Medicare to also lower their prices as well. But I mean, we could have had it going beyond Medicare and we can just thank Republicans in the Senate for not voting for that. It was always my understanding that Medicare kind of set the price for a lot of uh, uh, services in the healthcare industry, that a lot of other insurance companies worked off of. That was their starting point was the Medicare pricing. Yeah, I think I think that is true. So I think it could put pressure downwards um, in other spots, but it's not necessarily as right. direct as what yeah. this is going to be able to do mm -hmm. for those on Medicare. Yeah, Rose, let's move on to climate change and energy. This is the biggest single investment the country, almost probably maybe in the world, we've ever made to you know committing to dealing with carbon pollution and lowering energy costs and increasing how would you say it, uh, uh, speeding up our transition to alternatives. So take us through that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you're right. I mean, I know that it's the biggest investment in America's history. And I think given America is the biggest economy yeah. in the world, I think <laughs> yeah. we can fairly yeah. assume it's the biggest in the world. But, you know, yeah. I'm not, I, I wouldn't um, quote me on that exactly because I yeah. haven't gone through the entire world, but I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the, the I mean, the energy part of the whole package is actually one of my favorite. It's actually my favorite part of the whole package because it's not just reducing costs. It is aggressively tackling the climate crisis, which is beneficial to us now and beneficial to future generations, but doing so in a way that's going to create good paying jobs across the country. You know, it's building out a whole new workforce in America, and it's making sure that those jobs are good paying jobs. It has a lot of mechanisms in there that really goes to making sure, you know, people are getting paid good wages, which I think is, you know, sometimes a benefit that isn't necessarily thought of when you're thinking of climate change. Usually we're yeah. thinking of, oh, people are going to lose employment because we're transitioning. But this part was really crafted with an eye towards making sure this is good for the economy and good for workers as well. So it's got a range of things. I think some of the biggest things are is that based on the package, emissions are projected to be, you know, reduced by about 40%, which is huge. It's, you know, also going to lead to about nearly 4,000 lives being saved annually by 2030 because of cleaner air. I think the idea that people, you know, die from pollution in the richest country in the world is devastating. And so, you know, I think it's, again, it's something we don't necessarily think about. And then in addition to the pollution and the literal lives that are going to be saved, it's, of course, going to lower energy costs. And that's obviously coming at a time when energy costs are really skyrocketing and putting a lot of pressure on people's budgets. And so there are various different mechanisms. So one of the things that could happen is a family could save about $1,800 annually through their gas and utility bills if they begin to like electrify um, their source of energy. There's also a lot of rebates, about nearly $28,000 worth of upfront incentives to buy electric vehicles, again, through the electrification of cars. And in addition, again, this is all creating, you know, 
good paying clean energy jobs nearly like it's, i think the projections are about 1.5 million by 2030 it's it's so exciting actually and you know the the the, the folks i have uh, the folks i know who are in the climate who you know devote themselves to the climate space are super excited about this so rose i have a really selfish question and i don't know how whether you can answer this or not I, I would like to convert my furnace to a heat pump. I have a bid in. It's very expensive. Should I wait until January? What, what are what? Because I I see all this talk like up to eight thousand uh, dollars in rebates for uh, um, for heat pump conversion and so forth. What is this going to mean to average people? Yeah, I would be waiting because this is the thing. Like you said, there's money in there for very like specific items. So it's like your furnace like your cars so i think you know it's worth it's worth waiting till you know this bill gets implemented and there are particular dates in which all of these different um measures begin but i definitely wouldn't go out there now and make any of those purchases because there are real there are real dollar savings associated with electrification right but isn't that a nice thing when you can actually save money and do good for the planet at the yes. same time? Yeah. Like, it's like, it's not, I feel like for a long time, climate change has been framed as like, some people win, some people lose. And I really, what I really like about this package is that it's helping reduce costs in a way that, you know, everyday people can understand what's happening, but also doing it to reduce pollution and reduce emissions, which will save lives in the end. And another thing that people don't wrap their minds around, you know, we had that spike in uh, gasoline prices this summer, and, and they're still really high. If you were driving an electric car, the, you know, the price of electricity did not spike. Ele electricity rates are, you know, they go up over time, but they're relatively stable. They're regulated. You know, you don't get them doubling or tripling uh, over the course of a month. So you're able to budget what your uh, costs are going to be for if you have an electric car for your fueling the car if if you've got a heat pump for heating or cooling your home whereas you know having bought heating oil over the years in this house you know one year it's it's two dollars a gallon the next year it's five dollars a gallon it can be really expensive depending on when you fill that tank and so this, this provides a lot more stability into people's budgeting when they sh shift to electricity. Yeah. It remind us uh, what's in the bill for electric cars. Yeah. So um, households will be able to save about $28,000 in upfront incentives to buy electric vehicles and household appliances. And I think the point that was just made about how volatile gas prices are right now but also not right now that's just been a historic factor yeah, of gas sure. prices for example that like there's a huge component of this that means in the future because we're going to become less reliant on fossil fuels we're going to just have less inflationary pressures in the economy in the long right. term absolutely and, and you know and the thing that i think is always important to remind people is that the you know petroleum and coal have basically not changed in cost over time for a century on an inflation adjusted basis. But these new technologies like solar and wind are declining in cost uh, at extraordinary rates. And the quicker we can make the transition away from petroleum and other things to these alternative sources of energy, 
both the cheaper it's going to get, but also the more stable the prices will be, you know, permanently because, you know, the, the sun continues to shine no matter what. Uh, and, and that will be a help helpful to everybody. Yeah. And Val Vladimir Putin can't cut off the supply of it. He cannot, <laughs> he cannot. And finally, we have started to do some important things to make the tax system fair. Absolutely. And I think I want to start with the one thing that isn't in here that I think really is important is that no one making under $400,000 a year is going to pay any more in taxes. I think there has been a little bit of, you know, lying, a little bit of lying. Lying. Yeah, a little bit of <laughs> lying on the side of some other people who are going out there and saying that, you know, low to middle income Americans are going to be paying higher taxes as yeah. a result of the Inflation Reduction Act. And I'm like, that's just not a true. Lie. Like, actually, that is not true. Yes. So what's that's not in it, but I can tell you what's in it. And one of the biggest things that's in it is that corporate tax avoidance is a huge problem in the US yeah. and huge problem globally. Now, what the bill is going to do is it's going to make sure that corporations pay at least 15% minimum tax when they have at least a billion dollars in profits annually, which to me just seems like something they should have been doing in the first place. So the way I see this is that they're really just cracking down on corporations who are trying to avoid paying taxation, which I don't see anything wrong with that. I think that's like a great measure. Yeah. It's a great way to pay for things for sure. that we need, like lower prescription drug costs yeah. and um, you know clean energy. So that I would say is the central part of it. There's also some money going to the um, IRS to help um, yeah. you know deal with people who are cheating the tax system. And there's also... Um, some money, some taxation on stock buybacks, which, you know, became part of a end of Senate last minute negotiation with yeah. um, Senator Cinema. We have been longtime critics of stock buybacks. And again, we've talked about it on the pod before, but just to remind listeners, this is this practice of corporations buying their own stock back to increase the both the price of the stock and the earnings per share of the company, uh, which mostly benefits people on the top 1%. Uh, and the practice has gotten so out of control that it now counts for almost 5% of GDP. It'll be well over a trillion dollars this year. And that money is creating no economic benefit right. to the broader society. It's just, it's, just a, it's just a scam to make rich people richer. It didn't used to be legal. And then at the beginning of the sort of neoliberal era in 1982, they deregulated it and uh, Ronald Reagan de deregulated it. And now it is this one of the it, absolutely one of the most pernicious practices right. in the economy today. Um, it accounts for a huge reason for why folks don't earn enough to get by without help from the government. And uh, there's now, is it a 1% tax on stock buybacks, but it should be a 20% tax on stock buybacks. And maybe we'll get there eventually. It's like a, a trillion dollars a year in, in stock buybacks. Yeah. And, and one of the interesting things, of course, is that it creates, there, there's two ways for uh, a company to send money to shareholders. One is uh, this indirect way through uh, stock buybacks. The other is through dividends. Uh, this creates a bit of a disincentive to go the stock buyback route. And if that pushes more money to dividends, that's great because dividends are taxed. Whereas um, a lot of this goes into unrealized gains by just pushing up the uh, paper value of the stock. Yeah. Yeah. But 
you know, a nice fat 10 to 20% tax on all stock buybacks uh, would, would <laughs> be an awesome hope. thing. We can only hope. We can put yeah. that yeah. out there and maybe yeah. we'll see if that happens. And I think one of the really important things to say about stock buybacks is like, this is revenue that could go directly to, you know, workers through yeah. the form of higher wages. It sure. could go towards investments that actually boost the economy. The way it's being utilized now is, you know, not really like cr um, creating additional output. It's not boosting our economic no. activity. It's not benefiting workers. So this is like a really good step in the right direction. Yeah. And hopefully we see, you know, now that it's 1%, hopefully we can see it eventually being increased at some point yeah. too. Yeah, but just if just quick math, a tr I think it's going to be a trillion two hundred billion this year. Uh, that is for if, if for the bottom ninety percent of of workers, that's ten thousand dollars per worker per year. I mean, it's just an astonishing amount of money. And you know, we don't have an inflation problem in this country. We have a wage suppression problem in this country and every worker earned $10,000 more a year in the bottom nine deciles, everything would be a lot easier for everyone. And, you know, it's stuff like stock buybacks that prevents that from happening. Absolutely. And it's also why I really like that the way this bill was crafted was with an eye towards reducing inflation, but not doing so in a way that actually hurts you know, right. everyday Americans, right. which is usually the way that we think about, oh, inflation is happening. We can only no. rely on the Federal Reserve to increase interest rates and, you know, create mass unemployment. And push right. us into a recession, which will exactly. reduce inflation. Yeah. So exactly. we'll trade off 20 million more people being unemployed for slightly lower prices for the rest of us, which is titanically stupid. And I think this gets back, Rose, to something you said at the very top of this interview when you referred to this as addressing non-negotiable costs. The you know if if dining out the cost of dining up out goes up, you can choose not to dine out so much. But you can't negotiate the prices on healthcare. You can't negotiate prices at the pump. You can't negotiate the price of uh, your uh, home heating oil or your natural gas. Uh, and so the, this addresses these core costs that Americans, that American consumers, uh, regardless of income, have no control over whatsoever. And it's a huge part of uh, where the inflationary pressures are coming from. Yeah, no, it's really awesome. So one final question, Rose, uh, why do you do this work? Oh, why do I, why? So it's actually, to be honest, the reason I became an economist was I was in law school also becoming an economist at the same time, came from Australia, very different education system. And I was working at a legal firm and seeing the same problems day in, day out, just different people. And I was like, I'm here to create systemic change. And this is why I do this work. I think it is really, really crucial to be able to affect, you know, millions and millions of people which is honestly like I look around and I'm like, there are so many issues out there in the world. And this is my way of contributing to helping, you know, reduce some of the issues that are out there. So, I mean, I really enjoy it. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. And hopefully we'll get to talk to you again. Great. Thank you so much. That was a great conversation. And, you know, the more you talk about this bill, the more excited I get about the elements in it. But the thing I think is really worth underscoring and sitting with is that, you know, President Biden 
ran on and committed to building the economy from the middle out. And I say that at the risk of being self-aggrandizing, because listeners probably know we are the ones that created that middle out economics narrative as a antidote to trickle down economics. And, you know, we spoke at length with the Biden administration about the necessity of doing it. And as we did the Obama administration, by the way, but they blew it off. But the Biden administration has both adopted the narrative and committed themselves to the policy agenda it implies right. in the most robust way, you know, in a generation. And, you know, we have a piece out in the New Republic. Uh, how did they title it? Uh, I helped coin the phrase middle out economics. Biden is making it a reality that we'll put in the show notes. I was super pleased to see that Ron Klain, the president's chief of staff, just retweeted it uh, saying, this is what we're doing. Uh, yeah. which is really, really fun. And and the and the Inflation Reduction Act is just another great example of the commitment to that way of thinking about economic cause and effect. Right. And, and more importantly, I think, and this might sound weird to people that I'm saying it's more importantly, but if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you'll you'll get the theme here. They're not just walking the walk, they're talking the talk. Talking the talk is as important, if not more important, yeah. than walking the walk here. They are passing legislation that grows the economy from the middle out. And that's great. But if that's all they did, and Americans didn't know that that's what yeah. they were doing, and that's what they were doing it for, it would not have the same impact. What's Correct. important here, and we talk about this a lot, how important narrative is, they have consistently use that phrase about growing the economy from the bottom up and the middle out. They have consistently reminded Americans that that's how you grow the economy, not cutting taxes for the rich, not suppressing wages. It's increasing incomes uh, for and reducing costs for 90% of Americans, for the middle class. And uh, it's a different way of thinking about the economy. And it is a learning opportunity for democratic politicians to see that you can win on this type of narrative and for the American people, for American voters to understand that there is no big trade-off between fairness and growth. That if we try to benefit the middle class, that's not bad for the economy. That will not kill jobs. That will not reduce growth. That will not drive up costs. That's how you grow the economy, create broad prosperity for everybody. And you just have to admire through all the bad press that they got over that time when people were criticizing the administration, largely over things which were not their fault. They stuck by that narrative. They yeah continued to talk through it, and they're governing that way. And I think that is a real paradigm shift uh, that you you finally have Democratic leadership, the Democratic Party led by President Biden, breaking from the old neoliberal talking points. Yeah. And if you think back to it, you know, the last time there was a shift like this, it was in the Reagan administration. The trickle down era. That's right. I mean, yeah. it it started in the Carter administration. The neoliberal era really did start in the Carter administration. But the talk, the yeah. narrative, the changing the, of perceptions, the way people thought about the economy to that trickle down supply side approach, 
that was Ronald Reagan's great contribution, you know, yeah. we would say for worse. Yeah. But the Reagan revolution was real. We're seeing the Biden revolution right now. That's right. Absolutely. And it's so it's so exciting. And if we can keep this thing on track, I think the country is going to be in such better shape. It's very exciting. And Nick, they're doing things that they're being smart politicians in a way that yeah. the Democrats often aren't. Democrats yeah. often negotiate against themselves and like, oh, we can't do that. That's going too far. I mean, one of the most exciting things they did, one of the cleverest uh, here's Dark Brandon at his best is uh, the redefining of uh, air pollution to include greenhouse gas emissions. Yes. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. And, remind, and remind people why that's so important. Right. Because the Supreme Court ruled that the EPA couldn't regulate greenhouse gas emissions because the Clean Air Act didn't give them that power uh, because carbon dioxide was not a, a pollutant. You know, in a way, it's kind of true. When the Clean Air Act was passed, it was meant to control air pollution, you know, carbon monoxide and particulates and so forth to have cleaner air in terms of breathing. So that was the original intent. And and this Supreme Court said, well, that's narrow. You can't redefine it to include something which is destroying our climate. <laughs> so. So in passing this, uh, the the Democrats went and said, OK, Supreme Court, we've just redefined it. So now it includes this. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I'm sure it'll be contested. It'll go back. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't pass this court to be a bunch of uh, total hypocrites and find some other issue to prevent the EPA from doing it. But it's it's a really bold, clever, smart yeah, uh, dark Brandonish move on the it Democrats' is. part. Finally, Democrats playing the same game that uh, Republicans are playing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we're going to be talking about another one of our favorite subjects: overtime pay, with the journalist Marcus Baram. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.